Support has been provided by an independent educational grant from AbbVie, Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Genentech, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, and Sanofi Genzyme. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming to our course today on genetic testing and prostate cancer. Uh, my name is Todd Morgan from the University of Michigan. Before we get started, I need to ask everybody to get your phones out. If you don't have the app, download it. We're just, uh, the instructions, if you haven't done this before, because the, the purpose of this is so that we have some audience response system questions we would love your participation in. So you need to find the session, and then um, I think basically there's like that button at the bottom, circled in red, that hopefully will come up, and then when we have an ARS question that comes up, you'll be able to answer it on your phone, and then we'll, we'll be able to take a look at the poll results. At the end of all of our talks, we also have some kind of more opinion-type questions that we're going to use the audience response system as well, and hopefully if we have time. Everybody getting this? Anybody have any questions, issues? It's working. Great. So if you have any questions that's not working, come on up here. We'll get you some help. Here's our disclosures. Um, some of these are, you know, potentially relevant. So, you know, I want to leave these up here for a second for disclosures for Dr. Gamela, for myself, and for Dr. Chang. So again, my name is Todd Morgan. I'm a urologic oncologist at the University of Michigan. We have an amazing faculty, Dr. Gamela here, is the chair at Jefferson, and Dr. Chang from the University of Washington. Dr. Gamela is a urologist, like myself, both urologists. Dr. Chang is a medical oncologist. So we really are capturing, I think, a lot, you know, a lot of the perspectives from both localized and advanced disease uh, related to genetic testing. Overall, for the next couple hours after my little introduction, Dr. Gamela is going to give a talk on the basic concepts and impact of prostate cancer um, screening you know, related to genetics. I'm going to give a talk on the implications of testing in localized disease, and then Dr. Chang is going to end with implications in advanced disease. We are going to try to save some time at the end, specifically for questions and discussion, but also we'll have some time as we go. Please ask questions. Come up to the mic. We want to hear, um, you know, practical questions, theoretical questions, whatever you got. This is the list of the learning objectives. Um, the, let me just go through them real quickly. They're basically fourfold. One is to counsel men with BRCA1 and 2 mutations, Lynch syndrome, and other key inherited syndromes regarding their prostate cancer risk and appropriate strategies for cancer screening. We're going to describe the criteria for genetic testing in, in men with prostate cancer, how we go about it, how to interpret the results of testing, how to talk about this with patients, facilitate shared decision-making based on the test results, and then how to utilize the results of testing to improve outcomes. That's what we're really here to do. That's the whole purpose of this. I mean, with localized cancer, metastatic cancer, how we might use this information to impact our treatment recommendations. So real quick, I, you know, I'd just like to put up a, the 30,000-foot view of what we're even talking about, because for, for some of us, we haven't thought about this since high school, college, med school. DNA is what's inherited from generation to generation. DNA is replicated. There's a DNA that's been passed down. There's DNA in all of our cells that can change over time that can be not inherited. DNA turns into RNA, which then turns into proteins, which kind of make us who we are. It's really the 
tiny, tiny little minority of DNA that actually codes for protein, 2%, whereas the rest, the other 98% is dark matter. We have some idea what some of it may do. We have no idea what a lot of it may be there for. And changes can be inherited in both types of the, the DNA, the coding and the non-coding. Why do we, do we even think about this? Well, germline testing can be really important for risk assessment, right? So a guy without prostate cancer may help us kind of think about who should undergo intensive early detection, intensive screening. You can think about it for prevention. So that's really easy to think about when you talk about breast and ovarian cancer risk, where there's really key concrete steps we can take for prevention, like chemo prevention or prophylactic surgery. Less clear for prostate cancer right now. Germline alterations can have an impact on prognosis. They can potentially impact treatment decisions. We'll talk about that. And really importantly, they can impact familial risk and testing. And so it's not just the individual themselves with the impact for their family. So four pre-test questions. I'm just going to read them, give you a chance to answer. I, my understanding is that you will get emailed or through the app questions at some point afterwards, and so you'll see the same questions, and we'll see if hopefully we learn something. But these are all topics we want to cover today in this course. So first one, the gene most clear, clearly associated with increased risk of aggressive prostate cancer is BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, or MSH2. When everybody got the app, the app ready? It's only 10 seconds. That worked. I should go back. Okay, let's see. We got two responses. Okay. I'm kind of new to this ARS here, so oh, here are we giving another chance to vote? I guess I don't know if I did that. Hey, we got 12 answers. Okay. Good. So, it, so the green is the correct answer. So here, BRCA2, and again, we'll be covering this in detail. Oh, okay, next one. So which of the following statements is false regarding genetic testing of prostate cancer patients? One, criteria for consideration of genetic testing includes family history of breast, ovarian, pancreatic, and colon cancer. Two, testing can be performed with blood or sputum. Three, multi-gene panel testing is covered by most commercial insurance providers for men meeting guideline criteria and four men with a variant of uncertain significance should be referred to a genetic counselor if they haven't been already. Okay. So we're, we're you know, smatting our responses here, which is good. You can see the one in green. So we'll talk a little bit about insurance uh, covers. Um, so again, this is the, the question was which is false. The other ones are true. Next one: 64-year-old man presents with metastatic prostate cancer. He has started ADT and is considering abdomen prednisone or docetaxel. You perform pretest counseling and order multigene testing in your, in your clinic. Test re results reveal a germline BRCA2 mutation, which is pathogenic. Which of the following is false? One: It is critical to refer to genetic counseling. 
For appropriate follow-up and cascade testing of family members too, it is critical to refer to genetic counseling even if he has only sons. Tailored clinical management should be considered for men with a BRCA2 mutation. Three, based on current data, presence of a germline BRCA2 mutation should lead to prompt consideration of adding a PARP inhibitor and avoiding abiraterone or docetaxel. And four, based on current data, presence of germline BRCA2 mutation should be noted for clinical trials and future consideration of PARP inhibitors and platinum chemotherapy. Good, so majority got the right one. Again, this is which one was false. One more. Which of these treatments, treatments may be particularly effective for men with Lynch syndrome who have metastatic prostate cancer? One, Olaparib, two, Pembrolizumab, three, Cisplatin, and four, Enzalutamide. So good, a real mix. And we'll talk as we go through this, which, that, why Pembro is the correct answer. Um, it, 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 and again, I, we're going to get a chance, you'll have a chance to answer these again at another time point, and hopefully we will know that we have done our job today if we move all, move all these into the green zone. So with that, let me introduce Dr. Camilla. He's going to talk about basic concepts of genomic testing for prostate cancer. Great. Thank you, Todd. And I'd like to extend the welcome to everybody for coming uh, coming to our course this year. It's uh, grown by leaps and bounds over the years. And thanks for being here. And uh, I'm honored to be with some of my colleagues here up on the podium who, uh, as you'll see as the program goes through, we've each set up centers of excellence at our medical center, and we've taken this whole area uh, certainly very seriously in urology practices. And you'll see Dr. Chang has really made significant contributions in the area of medical oncology to uh, genetic testing. So it's my job to bring everybody back to Biology 101 in college because I think that where we are today, we all need to understand the basics of what we're doing with genomic and genetic testing uh, in prostate cancer. So there are many, many, many different variants of prostate cancer testing out there. Uh, there are, in general, in medicine, we have almost now approaching 100,000 different genetic tests, but this is certainly a hot button across uh, all of medicine. There's something I loosely refer to as recreational genomics where patients can go online and for $25 or $30 get some, uh, get some information about their genomics. But my feeling is we have to be a little bit cautious about taking these recreational genomics and flipping them over to medical directives. I think that really needs to maintain uh, in the area of genetic counselors and physicians committed to this area. Uh, Ancestry talks about a lot of things which are fun to talk about around the holiday table about where you might think you came from and things like that. But let me caution you, there can also be a lot of turmoil. If all of a sudden somebody realizes they may not be related to someone, some might not be their father. This can cause a lot of anxiety. So we're talking about very serious concepts here when we talk about genetic testing, and we need to make sure that the information we're sharing with our patients is as pure and consistent as we can make it uh, in the field of medicine. Uh, lastly, something I'm personally a little bit upset about, even though we're not, uh, I'm not a breast cancer researcher, is the approval of 23andMe to offer breast cancer screening. Uh, and in fact, all they're doing is checking for three of the founder genes 
Americans of breast cancer in Ashkenazi Jews. And uh, there are probably 900 to 1,000, if not more, genes that can be altered with BRCA. Again, just to make the point, got to be cautious with what's out there. And remember, we're focused on hardcore medical uh, research-based uh, and uh, counseling of genetic testing and genomic testing. So why is this all starting? This was very quiet. And then in 2013, uh, it's 2003, something very important happened. The 13-year quest of the NIH to identify and classify the 3.2 billion base pairs in the human genome completed. This was a massive project. And uh, again, the fact that it took 13 years speaks volumes to how complex this entire field is. Developments were very slow, early part, but the last two to three years with the development of gene chip technologies and advanced uh, next generation sequencing, that process really sped up. So it was really not until 2003 or so that we actually had a good handle on, uh, on genetic and genomic uh, testing using molecular biology. Very interesting, um, connecting the dots between our personalized healthcare initiative and genetic and genomic testing. So in 2007, there was the Personalized Health Initiative that wanted to connect our electronic health records with gene-based medical care. So these things that we think are a new concept have actually been brewing for 10 to 12 years. Another sentinel event happened in 2013, and that was when uh, Angelina Bro Jolie brought to the world the concept of BRCA1 and BRCA2, which were actually the brand names of the BRCA1 or 2 mutation analysis from Myriad. Uh, and we thank her for doing this. We don't yet have a man that can bring his genetic story to such a platform as Angelina Jolie, but at least Angelina Jolie talking about her struggles publicly brought this concept of altered genes and hereditary inherited cancers to the world. But something also happened a couple of months later, and that was the Supreme Court weighed in with Myriad basically saying, um, yeah, you guys have had patents on this BRCA1 or BRCA2 uh, gene analysis, but the Supreme Court came in and said, basically, you cannot patent a naturally occurring or mutated gene. At that point, game on, and you had all of these other companies now finally getting involved in the area of genomic and uh, genetic testing. So in all of medicine, globally, genomic and genetic applications have been involved in three primary areas, risk and screening, pharmacogenomics, and decision-making. Risk and screening has really been more prominent in the area of breast cancer, where there are much more uh, official guidelines in that area. We don't have a, a we, we're starting to develop some guidelines in uh, urology for this in prostate cancer. We're not there yet, but they are evolving. Pharmacogenomics, any day now, as Dr. Chang will talk about, we are likely to have a pharmacogenomic companion test that relates to BRCA1 or 2 abnormalities. We don't have any pharmacogenomic tests today that link in urology a specific uh, drug with a specific disease. Taking pembrolizumab, which is a generally uh, available drug for patients with microsatellite insufficiently regardless of the tumor standpoint, we will probably have a pharmacogenomic test that relates to germline measurements in patients probably by the end of the year. The area we've been involved mostly has been in decision-making in urology, deciding for active treatment, active surveillance, adjuvant therapy, using platforms such as Polaris, GPS, and, and Decipher. So we've been there doing a little bit of work. 
This breaks it down a little bit further where, where we're looking in the field of urology at genomic and genetic testing. Of course, genomic testing on tissue has been one of our uh, main activities the last four or five years, and I think in urology we're very comfortable with that concept. Tumor sequencing is something that has not really come into its full potential in urology, but certainly in areas such as medical oncology where you're trying to look at new drugs that may not be approved for a specific indication to try to help a patient where you do a biopsy, you send it off to Foundation Medicine or Caris, and they give you a 200 or 300 gene panel, and then you can search through drugs that may be out there and available to potentially treat the patient. Again, not used extensively in urology, but where we're starting to come into our, our own here uh, in urology is in inherited genetic testing and understanding the fact that probably somewhere north of 10 to 15 percent of men with prostate cancer, you can identify some inherited component within the, within the family, and these may substantially increase the lifetime risk. And the assays that are out there, Color, GeneDx, Ambry, Myriad, Invitae, just a small slice of companies that are out there right now that offer these uh, genetic uh, uh, gene panels that are commercially available. So not all cancer, uh, all cancer is genetic, we all know that, but not all cancer is in fact inherited. And what we are starting to learn in, in prostate cancer, again, that there is a subset of patients where we can identify an inherited family risk for that man not only to develop prostate cancer, but really what our focus is, this, these genes tend to portend the development of a much more aggressive prostate cancer, and that's really what our, a lot of our, our focus is. So truly inherited prostate cancer is fairly infrequent. You all may remember the, uh, the, attitude, or the, um, the findings of a Hopkins a few years ago where you found uh, family members with three or more men less than the age of 55 who all developed prostate cancer. They identified what they felt was an inherited gene. And we'll talk about that inherited gene in a minute that we believe is operational in those families. But that's actually a small slice. A larger group of men have sort of what we call uh, hereditary prostate cancer, where you may be able to identify different probands in the family with breast cancer, ovarian cancer, melanoma, pancreas cancer, as we'll talk about, suggesting that maybe there's an increased risk for this man to develop prostate cancer. But again, most importantly, the concept that we're going to repeat over and over again is a more aggressive form of prostate cancer. And we also have to step back and still recognize the fact that the majority of men out there, probably 70 to 80 percent at this point in time, have sporadic prostate cancer, where we cannot specifically identify an inherited gene or an increased risk based on family history. So a little bit more on some of the basics, genetics versus genomics um, versus uh, uh, genomes. So genetics is our traditional study of inheritance, very easy Mendelian inheritance, single genes where you can identify sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis. The concept of the genome is what was completed in 2003 by the government where the entire sequence of 3.2 billion base pairs was, uh, was identified and that reflects the entire genetic component of an individual cell. Every cell in our body except for red blood cells has the whole genome. 
Today, the, we use this word genomics and genetics kind of interchangeably. The reason for that is this field of genetics has gotten much more complicated, and genomics really refers to multiple genes, multiple genes patterns, and their complex interaction between other genes and the environment. So when we use the term of genetic testing today, we're kind of referring to this broader concept uh, and use, tend to use the term genomic testing. So this is a very key concept, and this is a little bit foreign to most urologist, and that is germline mutations versus somatic mutations. This is going to be an important concept to remember as you enter the area of genomic and genetic testing for prostate cancer. Germline mutations are what the genes that you inherit from your mother or your father. They are identified not only in you, but in your, in your siblings uh, and in relatives. Somatic mutations I describe as the wild west of a tumor. Those are all the crazy things, all the mutations that can happen in a tumor as it develops. Some of those may be inherited, but many of those are just the natural things that happen as a tumor's mutational burden goes wild and all sorts of different things happen. So a lot of what we're going to be talking about today refers to germline mutations. What can we track through the family to identify increased risk? So a little bit more about the, about the basics. We talked about the genome. We all know, going back to our basic biology, the base pairs are our ATGCGA alignment uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the base pairs. Uh, a relative example of bacterium has about a genome of 600,000 base pairs, where human beings have 3.2 billion base pairs. Uh, and again, as Todd mentioned, really we have a large dark space out there. Only about 2% of our genome codes for proteins. 98% are housekeeping genes or genes we've yet to discover what they actually do. And this is where our field is going to be moving ahead uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, a few other little terminology things that you should put in your, uh, uh, in your trivial pursuit bag. Uh, exons are the DNA sequence within a gene. Introns are segments of DNA between exons that do not uh, code for proteins. You'll hear a lot about polymorphisms. Polymorphisms sort of go into the area of genomics and gen genetics, but they're a little bit different. They are basically small variations in DNA sequence that make us all unique human beings. Blue eyes, brown eyes, tall, short. So they don't really get that much involved in inherited uh, diseases. However, when we talk later about variants of uncertain um, uh, significance, it may be some of these polymorphisms, random changes in the DNA sequence, may ultimately prove to be an important and an inherited gene. And lastly, epigenetics is just a concept to mention because it does appear in some of our um, diagnostic tests that we use in urology uh, where it's a on off switch. It's not actually a change in your DNA sequence, but it's a turn on and turn off a gene, very often uh, based on environmental exposures. So here's a cute picture I always like to show uh, uh, relating to urology. The Washington, uh, the Washington Monument is an important symbol, I think, uh, and to all of us in the field of urology. Thank you, Todd, for laughing. But if you look at a relative uh, amount of, uh, of telephone books, I don't think this actually adds up, but approximately 200 telephone books of information would comprise the human genome. And you can see there down at the bottom, an E. coli genome would be about 300 pages of one of the 
telephone books. The reason I show you this graphically is a very simple reason. This is beyond our human understanding. We are completely dependent on computational biology. This is an example of just one small segment of the BRCA2 gene. This machine language goes on page after page after page, and it's only through the benefits of computational biology when we loosely talk about a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. It may be somewhere on the fifth or sixth line there where a uh, AT and a GC get switched. This is why this field has become very complex and very much dependent on, uh, on technology. So genomic tissue testing is something we've been doing in urology for a long time, uh, looking at things, again, such as Decipher and Prolaris. What we're talking about today is mostly going to be germline genetic testing that can be done almost exclusively off of buccal swabs, but can also be done after a peripheral uh, 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 blood draw. Lastly, this concept of deep sequencing, next generation sequencing. That is a common buzzword, but something that's very important to understand. When you are talking about so many different base pairs expanding over page after page, the chance to make an error when you're reading that base pair is very high. So what next generation sequencing or deep, genera or deep sequence is, going back over and over and over again to the same region to minimize the chance that you have a read area. And this is where you get between the, the rock and a hard place between recreational genomics where they do very low cost testing but they may not do very uh, accurate and sustained deep sequencing versus a hard Hardcore, most of our medical laboratories are really dedicated to making sure the accuracy of the results are very high. So with that background, let's talk a little bit about prostate cancer risk. Uh, again, we mentioned somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of prostate cancers are hereditary. Another important concept that we need to understand in urology, these mutated genes do not cause cancer. Some of my residents will say, oh yeah, he's going to, you know, he's got BRCA1 or 2, he's going to get prostate. No, that's not true. They, however, the way we can think about it in men is they act like an accelerant. If this man is going to develop prostate cancer and he has one of these common gene abnormalities, chances are he's going to have a more aggressive form of prostate cancer, higher Gleason score, more likely to metastasize. So again, these mutations that we're talking about, again, when we use the term BRCA1 or 2 or CHECK or ATM today, we're actually going to be only talking about the mutated genes, the genes that don't function uh, properly. Um, the other thing that we know is they increase the risk of other cancers, not only in the individual but in their family. For example, a man with BRCA1 or 2 abnormality who has prostate cancer is at increased risk of having male breast cancer. Likewise, other members in the family have an increased risk of having breast and ovarian cancer. The individual may be increased risk of other cancers that we're learning about, pancreatic cancer, melanoma, colorectal cancer through the linked genome, and so on. So Todd showed you at the, at the, uh, at the uh, introduction, why do we genome, do genomic and germline testing? And one of the biggest reasons we do it today is to look for increased risk in individuals with a family history, but much more importantly, as, as Heather will finish up on, identifying actionable genes that may allow us to have more precision medicine derived ways to treat uh, prostate cancer. So this is just a short list of some of the genes that have been identified as mutated in prostate cancer, and you can see the relative prostate cancer risk. But again, what's interesting, 
and is becoming very important as we develop new drugs such as PARP inhibitors, the fact that many of these are involved with DNA damage response. <clears throat> Our body does everything it can to protect the DNA, and if you've got an alteration in one of these genes, it's a weak point. The DNA may not be able to repair a single-strand break or a double-strand break, and it may either increase the likelihood of developing a malignancy, as we'll talk about a little bit more. The yellow there is the HOXB13 gene, and if you look, it has some of the highest uh, prostate cancer risk because that, we believe, is one of the most identifiable familial inherited genes that does increase the risk of uh, men in a family developing early forms of uh, a prostate cancer. So this DNA damage uh, response pathway, Heather is going to talk a little bit about more, but again, a healthy cell tries to protect its DNA as much as possible, and when these normal genes like the BRCA1, 2, ATM check are functioning, they try to protect the genome from further, for further damages, but it is alterations in these DNA damage response pathways that appear to be very common in men who appear to have an increased risk of prostate cancer. So when we look at this, uh, if you've got these altered genes, and again, we use BRCA1 or 2 as sort of the, uh, the most commonly mutated genes, as, as, you'll see, uh, as you'll see as the talk go on, they increase the man's risk of developing aggressive prostate cancer. And again, I'll repeat, they do not cause prostate cancer, but they appear to act as an accelerant that makes the development of prostate cancer occur more easily and make it progress much more, uh, much more rapidly. So the impact of these genes such as BRCA1 or 2, while they're important in men, they pale in comparison with how important they are with women. You can see from this article here that BRCA1 or 2 mutations who are female have much higher risk of developing aggressive forms of cancer relative to the males. So we're just sort of at the tip of the iceberg right now. Uh, the the, the uh, genetic counseling that we do for ladies with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer far exceeds that that we currently do for men with prostate cancer. However, we are identifying these guys are the, the red hot ones, the ones that really need to be identified and may be treated differently than others who do not have these genetic uh, abnormalities. Again, the hereditary prostate cancer genes, the ones that get inherited, they increase the risk of cancers not only in the patient, but again, the important thing is to think about family, uh, family members, male breast cancer, melanoma. One of, my big, uh, one of my big aha moments occurred about two years ago when I had taken a man's uh, prostate out about 10 years before, um, and he called me to tell me that his brother had just been, who was diagnosed, I also took his brother's prostate out, had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and just died. A year later, I get another call back from this guy saying, uh-oh, I have pancreatic cancer too. So suddenly it hit me that prostate cancer and pancreas cancer uh, are related, and again, it's coming true as we do more and more of our genetic uh, testing. So here's the fascinating thing. For many, many years, the hereditary breast and ovarian cancer guidelines uh, in the NCCN guidelines talked about BRCA and prostate cancer. So if you would search the NCCN guidelines before about 2017 or 2018, you had more information about men with prostate cancer and recommendations if there's a lady with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, what should be done for men and her family than we had in the urology guidelines. 
Well, for the first time in early 2017, we noted in the NCCN guidelines for the detection of prostate cancer that we should be aware of the fact that if a man has a personal or family history of a related mutation, again, BRCA1 or 2 or some of the others, that should be considered in the screening uh, algorithm. It's not recommended at this point, but it's something that you need to be considered. So a big thing happened in now the, uh, the latest update of the NCCN guidelines. Much more detailed information, much more specific recommendations concerning prostate cancer uh, early detection. And again, I refer you all when you have a chance to check out the NCCN guidelines, but talk much more about how the screening regimen should be considered to be altered in men who have a family history of this gene. How are these men getting detected? Well, they probably have a mother, a sister, a child with breast and ovarian cancer, and a genetic counselor said, you know, sir, maybe you want to be checked, or other members of the family, a concept known as cascade testing, maybe you want to be checked out. The man may end up uh, finding, and I'm having more and more men come into our clinic with this, uh, who have a BRC1 or 2 and asking, how should I be screened and should I be screened uh, differently? There are studies out there. This is something known as the, the profile study. This is mostly done in, uh, in Europe and in England where we're really trying to get a good handle on the actual screening process and how that might be impacted by somebody's uh, genetic predisposition. Um, each of us here represent different medical centers. We've all made a commitment to this at Jefferson in 2014 in our multidisciplinary clinic. We embedded uh, Dr. Vita Geary and her team to sit down and do initial discussions with men who may have inherited prostate cancer risk. We actually, in our particular clinic, we don't do the counseling at that point, but we make them aware of the fact that we do have a program and that after they're done with their treatment, their diagnosis, and whatever decision they make on their prostate cancer, that they're welcome to come back and sit down with a genetic counselor and see if there is a reason to do genetic testing. But again, not all patients need this. Again, remember, 50 to 60% at least of our cancers are sporadic. So very often, they'll sit with the genetic counselor, they'll do a family tree, they'll look at all the programs, they'll look at uh, you know, uh, Lynch syndrome, GI cancers, melanomas, and they'll say, you want to know what? We would recommend that you, as an individual, have genetic testing. Or they may say, look, there's not enough information here for us to recommend uh, genetic testing. Uh, this is Todd's program at the University of Michigan, uh, where he looks specifically at uh, more patients with the specific uh, uh, gene alterations and uh, suggest how they should be, how they should be followed up with these, uh, with these uh, alterations. And again, this is going to give us very important information going forward on the best way to uh, track this uh, very complicated area. Um, Vita Geary at our shop, we're working extensively with Janssen right now. We're trying to make an app to make it easier to plug in information. Primarily, this is really going to be for providers initially to plug in certain key information to suggest that this person has a low, intermediate, or high-risk need to see a genetic counselor, and we're hoping to have this, uh, have this uh, proofed out by the uh, end of the year. Um, I am a big believer in formal genetic counseling. I am not a genetic counselor. Uh, I think that this is an area that, as urologists in particular, we need to be very sensitive about. I know we sort of get into debates, uh, and some of us have different opinions about this, but I believe that understanding 
that this is a very complicated area that we've not been reared in. It's only come into our zone the last two or three years. Here's just an example of a lady who went through all of this with a bunch of nurse practitioners, surgeons, GYN oncologists, and again, they told her that she had a genetic abnormality and it turned out she had unnecessary surgery. Um, genetic testing and counseling is a multi-step process. It takes into account a lot of different aspects and this is where I don't think as surgeons and urologists we spend enough time with our patients going over all these areas but our trained genetic counselors are trained to do this and I think can give their pa the patients the best, uh, the best aspect. They look at the family history, they look at the personal disease characteristics and then they talk about not only different types of testing available but they get into to things like insurance coverage, cascade testing, testing other members of the family. So again, I personally am a big believer that I like to recommend these patients see a genetic counselor for the final decision should they undergo genetic counseling. So this is an example of cascade testing. Um, who decides if this, what should be done with this 35-year-old? You can see heavy history of breast and prostate cancer, colon cancer as well. I think a genetic counselor can look at this family tree and make the best decision. The other thing is GINA, which is known as the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. We think this completely protects patients from discrimination from genetic testing, but it's not exactly true. It protects you against discrimination in health insurance and employment, but it may not protect you against something such as life or disability insurance. And this is something that patients need to understand before they sign on the bottom line to make sure they are fully aware of what the implications of having genetic testing uh, may be. This is one of these scary things. Um, there are many, many, many. There is not just one mutated BRCA1 gene, not one mutated uh, BRCA2 gene. There are many different variants, and I think it's very important that this is an example of one genetic test where it gives a very specific abnormality in this particular individual. And again, this particular form and this particular report, I think a genetic counselor is better analyzing uh, than me. So here's an example of what scares me a little bit. You can see there's one, two, three different terms that are used here. They're all the same mutation, but they're all described differently based in the, uh, in the NCI uh, genetics uh, uh, database as well as by the companies. Lastly, there's this concept of genetic variant of uncertain significance known as a VUS. What these are, these are gene alterations that come up that get put into a, a data bank and that are left there for several years and other individuals uh, that are doing genetic testing can go into this and decide is this a real gene that we've identified or we don't really know what it is. And why do I show you this? Because again, genetic counselors are linked into the VUS database and when they test a patient, they will go in and periodically get updates two or three years later. Is this VUS a real one or is it just a random SNP or something like that? Fortunately, most of these VUSs today are not proven to be pathogenic. They're proven to be just random. But again, another reason why I think we need our uh, genetic counselors. And lastly, 
Medicare is pretty good about covering a lot of these genetic testing, but I think you all know once you get down to the local, the local insurance carriers, it gets, uh, it gets a little bit tricky. So uh, we were very proud of uh, sponsoring an international uh, consensus at Jefferson in 2017, uh, and we have our next one coming up uh, this fall, where we're going to try to further drill down on the practical aspects, and I'm uh, pleased that both uh, Dr. Morgan and Dr. Chang are going to be participating with us in our fall, uh, in our fall um, consensus that's going to really look at the nuts and bolts. Well, what do we need to do as providers to implement genetic testing out in the practice world and outside of the world of academic medical centers or uh, community medical centers. So um, I'm pleased to give you this background. Uh, I hope it gives you guys the toolkit to sort of go forward uh, and understand this very complicated but very exciting world uh, that we now have available to us. Again, a lot of our focus is on prostate cancer, as you know, but this is going to be expanding out to other areas of urology in the coming years. Thank you. That was fabulous, Lenny. Uh, that was really as good of a talk on this topic as I've ever heard. We do have a few minutes if anybody wants to ask any questions right now of anything that comes to mind um, from what Dr. Gamella talked about. Let me just ask one qu quick question. Can you talk a little more about your mobile app? I mean, how do, you, how do you think, how do we deploy something like that to make our lives easier in the clinic and be yeah, more effective? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. That's that's in the uh, that's in the earliest working phases right now. We're just trying to put together the sort of what we know and what we don't know, and try to first identify the common themes that providers need to be aware of when they're gener doing genetic counseling. You know, the issues about Lynch syndrome. Uh, you know, we think about Lynch syndrome a little bit in urology because of upper tract uh, urothelial carcinomas, but getting certain tags on there, check, there's certain check boxes. So again, it's it's evolving. Uh, it's a uh, version uh, less than 1.0 at this point, but uh, we'll see how it goes, and we'll certainly look forward to your and Heather's input as the uh, product comes out there. Please. Uh, Bob Dowling. I, I live in Texas, and it's my understanding that uh, non-MD genetic counselors, master's level counselors, uh, aren't licensed professionals uh, in the state of Texas, and that's a little bit of a barrier regarding this pre-test counseling versus post-test counseling issue. I just wonder if that's common across the United States, to your knowledge, uh, and, um, you know. It's, I mean, it, I, my understanding is that it really differs state by state, incredibly so. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how we can do genetic testing as urologists. I, I actually disagree a little bit with Dr. Gamella, which makes this fun in terms of, you know, ways to do this. Um, but I think Every, I've talked to people from all across the country, from all across the state of Michigan, for example, and everybody's experience is different because, you know, the, the resource of genetic counselors is incredibly limited, and there are different issues like this in different states. Yeah, in our state, they work under a licensed physician. They sort of have a supervising physician in the state of Pennsylvania that sort of supervises and actually signs off uh, uh, on the testing and the test results and the counseling. So every state's a little bit different. You can get, what's very nice are commercial sponsors do offer some telehealth counseling uh, where, you know, patients may not have a, a counselor nearby, but the counseling they do is kind of very general. They have to be cautious. They don't get too much uh, personal or specific. But the companies have been very good about at least offering initial telehealth counseling to patients who have genetic testing. 
Well, great. Uh, thanks again, Lenny. Um, so, so this talk is really going to be a lot of nuts and bolts around how we can do genetic testing. So I'm just curious, how many clinicians are here in the room? Most? Yes, yeah, so the majority. So of you, how many would refer your patients to a genetic counselor for testing the way that Dr. Gamela suggested? And then how many would do the pretest counseling yourself? So very, very few. Yeah, and that's, that doesn't, doesn't surprise me at all. And part of what I'm going to talk about is how I, th I think we might be capable of doing this and some of the why I think we might need to consider doing it. And so first, you know, it doesn't even matter what, what the mo whether you're referring to genetic counselors or whether we're going to do the pretest counseling and testing ourselves. We have to know which patients we think should undergo testing. So I'm going to talk about that. Then how to implement, again, what, no matter which model we want to use, we need some way to kind of think about how, how we implement testing in our clinics. And then finally, I think, touch on a couple key questions around should we treat patients with low-risk prostate cancer differently? Are patients still eligible for active surveillance, for example, if they have one of these mutations? And should we treat patients with high-risk uh, cancer differently if they have one of these mutations? I highlighted BRCA here, but it could be any of the inherited DNA damage re uh, repair genes. Now, this, I really like this figure about how to kind of conceptualize the genetics and prostate cancer, and Lenny t touched on really all of these issues, but really at the base are the common variants, the polymorphisms, the single nu nucleotide polymorphisms. There's a lot of them. They have a really, really small effect size, each of them, but there's a lot of data to support that you add them all up and you have a risk score of 100 SNPs, and they do carry some associated risk with them. Then there's the rare, uncommon variants, the ones that Dr. Gamela really touched on in detail, BRCA1, BRCA2, BRCA HOXB13. Those are in the, in the middle in terms of their effect size, in terms of the, their predisposition to cancers and prostate cancer in, uh, in particular. And there's these, you know, theoretical really rare variants that we see in other diseases where, um, where the likelihood of disease is incredibly high, we, and we don't have any example, examples of those in prostate cancer. So really quickly, around these SNPs, Again, these are single nucleotide polymorphisms. They're really common. They're often in non-coding regions like Lenny touched on. There are a lot of them that are associated with prostate cancer risk. You'll read about these GWAS uh, genome-wide association studies, the largest observational studies that look at SNPs and affected and unaffected individuals and you know, big data type analyses. And the data ends up being really interesting and often actually robust and validated. The mechanism is often unknown. They just kind of, they, these associations exist. We don't always know why they exist, but you can test hundreds of samples. You can come up with these polygenic risk scores, PRS, that separate patients into higher risk and lower risk based on these SNPs. Dr. Chang, I think, is going to touch on this a little bit later, too. And again, each one of these has a really small effect size. They're, they have a very, you know, uh, small increased risk of prostate cancer with any one of these, but you put them all together and you end up with these scores that actually do seem to move the needle in terms of risk. So you say, well, okay, I have patients with the, the uh, BRCA1, BRCA2, the more, um, you know, common variants that we talk about, uh, they're less common, but the ones that we think about, uh, how often do we see those in men with localized prostate cancer? Well, BRCA1 is about a half percent, BRCA2 is about 1%, ATM 0.4%. These are all much more common in lethal compared to non-lethal localized prostate cancer. I think many of you probably saw this paper that came out in the last couple of months because th this paper asked the question, okay, what happens when you 
deploy these tests into clinical practice. And so this was in JAMA Oncology from the Tulane group, Oliver Sartor, colleagues in collabor collaboration with Invitae. So what, what are the spread of mutations that we see? How often do we see these mutations coming up? It's a combination of patients with localized and metastatic cancer. And it turned out that the number in this study was 17%. 17% of patients who underwent clinical testing were found to have germline variants, okay? Now, there's a lot of information we don't know about those patients. We don't, you know, really have detailed clinical information in, in all of them. But that's much higher than, you, than we might expect. And we'll talk about some of the data from metastatic prostate cancer. Presumably, most of these patients had a really, had a, we were more likely to get tested because of their family history or other features. So it's probably not, you know, what we would see if we just did universal testing of men with prostate cancer. But again, it's a really high number. We'll talk about Colin Pritchard's paper a little bit uh, later here that shows the, the rates of these mutations in metastatic prostate cancer. Again, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this pie chart showing the mutations that we see, germline mutations in metastatic prostate cancer. What was interesting about this recent study in JAMA Oncology is that the spread of mutations was pretty similar. BRCA2 being most common, CHECK2 and ATM, other genes that are really commonly seen to be mutated in men with prostate cancer. Another really key principle here is that these mutations, and BRCA2 in particular, are associated with more aggressive disease. And so here's a, a study on the left, patients with, a combination of patients with metastatic um, and, and localized prostate cancer. Here the mutation carriers are shown here in, I guess, red. This is the localized only cohort, again, mutation carriers in red. Patients with these mutations are much more likely to pro progress to die of prostate cancer than patients without these germline mutations. Okay, so which patients with prostate cancer should undergo genetic testing? Who, if we're seeing these patients in clinic, what, you know, how do, I, how do we identify them? What, what should we actually be doing in clinic? And I will caveat all of this by saying we still have a lot to learn. This is not at all the be-all, end-all. And I guarantee that, you know, when we have this course in two, three years, we're gonna, it's going to be different. I don't know yet how it's going to be different, but this, this is evolving. And a lot of credit goes out to Dr. Gamella and Dr. Geary for holding this Philadelphia Consensus Conference that he mentioned a couple of years ago. It was really one of the first forays into asking this question, getting a group of people. It's really, it's, you know, it's a lot of expert opinion at this point because there's a fair amount of data, but we need a lot more data. And so based on this, the consensus conference recommendations were, you know, think about, um, you know, key risk factors like a family history of hereditary breast ovarian cancer, hereditary pancreatic cancer, Lynch syndrome, family histories of multiple close relatives with key cancers, patients with tumor sequencing that's demonstrated mutations in inherited cancer genes in all men with metastatic CRPC. So then, you know, somewhere along the line in the last few years, we realized that the genetic familial high-risk assessment for breast and ovarian risk, the NCCN actually at that time had, if you, especially if you go back a few years ago, had the best guidelines for testing of prostate cancer, even though there's no prostate cancer in the name of this NCCN guideline. And they're still really useful guidelines, and I recommend, you know, everybody in this room taking a look at them, but this is a space that you're interested in learning more about. These guidelines currently specify the following as the criteria for considering testing, okay? All metastatic prostate cancer patients should be considered for germline testing. And localized prostate cancer patients with Gleason 7 or greater disease who either have strong family history of a number of key cancers, prostate, breast, ovarian, pancreatic cancers, 
or patients with localized prostate cancer who have Ashkenazi Jewish, Jewish ancestry. They should all be considered for testing, meaning having a discussion about the possibility of them undergoing testing. However, again, however we want to imp implement that, and we'll talk about that. The NCCM localized prostate cancer guidelines over the past couple of years have put a lot of effort into thinking about this. And those guidelines are somewhat different. They're also, I think, very, very reasonable, also well worth a read. And for this, this guideline is actually a little more straightforward in how we think about it, okay? And it's risk-driven based on the patient's primary disease. So for low and intermediate risk patients, testing is recommended based on a strong family history, multiple family members of the key cancers that I mentioned, especially on the same side of the family, or patients with introductal histology. Introductal histology is associated with the greater likelihood of mutations in DNA damage repair genes. For patients with high-risk disease, testing is recommended to be considered even without family history. Still, we still don't have a great sense of what that, what the positive mutation rate is going to be with that, if we really implemented that type of a universal testing approach in high-risk patients without any selection. But there are absolutely reasons to think that this is an appropriate way to go about it. All right, so now, how do we actually do this? And we talked about a couple of models, the genetic counselor-driven and the possibly the clinician or oncologist-driven model, and I'm going to go into a little bit of that, a little bit more detail about that. So if we're going to do this, the first thing we have to do is define the criteria for testing. I just talked about a couple of guidelines, and I think those guidelines, you know, are, are ones that at this point are as good as we have in terms of thinking about how to do this. And we have to take a really good family history, and I'll talk a little bit about it ways to kind of simplify that, that, you know, wasn't that long ago, I'll admit, family history in my clinic notes would say no family history of prostate cancer, family history of prostate cancer, and that's it. So we can't do that anymore. We have to counsel the patient appropriately. We can do that. Genetic counselor can do that. There are a lot of issues around that if we're going to do that, to do it right. Determine the insurance coverage. Dr. Gamella touched on this. For patients with metastatic prostate cancer and Medicare coverage, Medicare, they're typically going to be covered for testing. For patients with localized disease, they're, they really, the, the criteria are stringent. And it's often very difficult to get insurance coverage. This is one of the pretest questions. It's often very difficult to get insurance coverage for patients with localized disease. Then we have to identify which test and order the test. Lots of tests on the market. If we haven't done the genetic counseling up front, we need to make, ensure that we close the loop with the genetic counselor. You know, genetic counselors are absolutely the linchpin of all of this, whichever approach we take, such that any patient with a positive test, meaning a pathogenic or likely pathogenic finding, or a variant of uncertain significance, sees, meets with a genetic counselor who really will do the, the post-test counseling at that point. So this is the form we now use at the University of Michigan for family risk familial risk assessment. It's really simple, but for us it's made a big difference. And this is, you know, patient now gets, every patient gets the same form. It hits on age, you know, who, what's the, what's the relationship, what cancer, and what's the age. The key cancers, prostate, breast, ovarian, colon, pancreatic, and some rare cancers. And so that, and that helps also for insurance coverage. We have that documented in, in a real, real clean way. If we are going to do the counseling, we have to do, I think, an you know, exceptionally good job at obtaining consent. We, have, we do assigned consent 
process around any patient who's going to get genetic counseling. We have to talk about the accuracy of the test, right? The test isn't, it's not perfect. It's not 100% sensitive. We have to discuss what we think the, you know, possible results could be. We could have a mutation. We could have a variant of uncertain significance, what those, you know, what those imply at that point. How it might impact treatment or might not, right? We have to, most common question we get, you know, especially for a gentleman, for example, I'll see a patient post-prostatectomy, they have gleaseinate disease, maybe they have a family history of prostate cancer, we're talking to that, I'm talking to that patient about germline testing, and the first question is, okay, well, what does this do, what's the impact for my cancer? And the answer is, at that moment in time, the patient has an undetectable PSA, there likely is no impact on the treatment, right? There might be an impact down the road if the patient develops metastatic disease. There might be an impact on the patient's family members, but for that individual at that moment in time, that result is actually not going to have a significant impact on how their disease is managed. And so we, we also discussed the, really the importance up front of closing the loop with a genetic counselor. If there's any abnormal finding, that last step is really critical. And so we make sure we have that conversation up front. And I should mention that, you know, issues around genetic discrimination, like with the, the GINA law that Dr. Gamella discussed. And so one thing to note, you know, on the NCCN guidelines is they really focus on BRCA testing. Because that's, you know, at this point, that's the most common variant. We know BRCA2 is the one that's most strongly associated with aggressive disease. But... We also know that the Supreme Court decision in 2013 that Dr. Gamella touched on totally changed the landscape in a number of ways. One of the ways in which the landscape has changed is that individual gene testing is pretty rare, unless there's a specific gene in the family that's, being, that's, known, that's known to be mutated, that's being tested. Most of the time, we're testing for multiple genes, multi-gene panel testing. Is that a good thing? Well, you know, with more genes you test, the more information you get, Maybe potentially relevant. Some of there are some of those genes are probably relevant. At the same time, some of those genes are really you know the data is not nearly as strong. They're included on there. You may find a mutation, but there are genes that we, we really aren't that sure of that have an impact in prostate cancer predisposition, predisposition to aggressive disease, disease progression, and so a lot of question marks. So that's we test more genes. And by the way, that the multi-panel testing approach is supported by the American College of Medical Genetics but we're more likely to find a mutation in a gene with unknown implications, more likely to find a variant of uncertain significance, of course. And all, all that adds up to a greater need for genetic counseling, of which you know, we, we do have a limited resource at this point. And so that's, of course, just, it's all more involved for the, for the patient. But that it, most of the time when we're, getting, when we're ordering testing, we're ordering a panel test. Okay? And, and so we've talked about the fact that there are a number of different multi-gene panel tests available commercially. There are nuanced differences between them, okay? But they really test, they all test key genes, BRCA1, BRCA2, CHECK2, genes associated with Lynch syndrome. Many of these out there currently. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the different models. And I adapted this figure a little bit from a recent paper by Dr. Gamel and Dr. Geary. That was a fantastic paper that came out like a month ago in Journal of Clinical Oncology, so I recommend anybody who has a chance to take a look at it. 
So thinking about this, right, right we had the show of hands, and the vast majority of us in the room, when we talk about how we go about recommending testing to patients or operationalizing testing, it's the genetic counselor directed. And so in, in this model, we're the ones who are showing us in blue as urologists, clinic clinicians, and we're the ones who are identifying, we we've got to be the ones identifying the patients for potential testing most of the time, but then really the genetic counselors take it from there, do all the subsequent steps. We place the referral. One of the problems that we found in addition to the shortage of counselors, which, you know, even though we have many genetic counselors at the University of Michigan, there's still quite long wait times. Uh, and in addition to that, we found that patients just often don't, aren't able to make it to those appointments for whatever reason. We were finding that it was a fraction of the patients that we were referring, recommending testing to. We replaced the referrals, but a fraction were actually closed in the loop and undergoing, even meeting with the counselor and then undergoing testing. And so that really drove us towards this second approach. And the second approach is the way that we're handling this with the majority of our patients. Of course, we offer referral to a counselor up front, but we've actually, as urologists and oncologists in our clinic, have taken upon us to do, do the next steps as well. And if we're going to do the next steps as well, we really have to go down this list, explaining the purpose of the tests and the genes tested, going over the actual genes that are tested, reviewing the accuracy of test, testing, like I mentioned, reviewing the testing outcomes, discussing the options for testing, discussing genetic discrimination risk, the GINA law. We have a, a really short but pretty thorough handout on GINA that all of our patients get, and we go through it with them. Because genetic discrimination, it's that the GINA law, like Dr. Kamala said, it's, it is not all-encompassing. We order the test. It can be blood or sputum. And then we discuss the results with patients. And at that point, patients are referred to a counselor if they have a positive finding or variant of uncertain significance. And then the genetic counselor does the subsequent counseling and also the cascade testing of family members. And as, as we've been adopting this approach, we've, we've been studying it as well as part of a IRB-approved study, evaluation of streamlined approach to genetic testing and localized and advanced prostate cancer. So patients who are undergoing counseling with us actually get consented prior to that pretest counseling. And then we use a, validated, a couple of validated survey instruments afterwards to see how we're doing. And I'll tell you that, is that coming out okay? Yeah. The results, I think, so far, this is just you know our, our initial experience. This is our, part of our initial pilot data. The results, I think, are good. And this is just a, a few questions that I pulled out. I think we're doing a good job, but boy, we could be doing better. So if you look, you know, so the blue is yes, orange is no, and gray is I don't remember. These are the responses that patients are giving after the pretest counseling as they fill out the survey. So did, did your oncologist, nurse, um, it's really, that's the, that's the wording, but for us, it's the urologist or oncologist doing the counseling. Explain the purpose of the genetic test. Yes, great, we're doing a good job of that. How about the types of genes being tested and their general function, kind of? Implications of a variant of uncertain significance, we're doing okay. Accuracy of the genetic test, not doing it as well on so far. So I think these data so far, these pilot data, suggest that we're capable of this. They also show that we can get better at this, and so we need to figure out ways that, that you know that we can do a better job. Um, and doing it, I think, in this way where we're measuring, we're doing the counseling, we're assessing, and it gives us a chance to cycle back and see, figure out ways for us to improve. I really think that as germline testing becomes more and more important in prostate cancer, there just aren't enough genetic counselor, counselors for us to use the counselor-directed model for most patients, especially as you get further away from the big cities. 
and perhaps you know perhaps telecounseling is another approach to uh, for us to do to, to do this as well without us always taking on the counseling as urologists. So you know from there we can order the test. It can be blood or sputum. I talked about that. We need to communicate the result, of course, like any test, but probably more important than any any you know a genetic genetic test absolutely needs to be communicated back to the patient. And then, like I said, genetic counselors are the linchpin of all of this. And so it is vital. We involve them throughout the whole process. Their genetic counselors helped us shape our protocol, but also we ensure that all, all of our patients with a positive finding do see the genetic counselor for the in-depth discussion after testing. So the last couple things I want to touch on briefly is, okay, so we've done the testing. It's positive. Patient has low risk disease or has high risk disease. What does that mean? Again, patients with BRCA2 mutations have more aggressive prostate cancer. This, these are uh, this is data from a couple studies showing that, again, we get the KM curve for metastasis-free survival for um, prostate cancer-specific survival here. Patients with BRCA2 mutations have more rapid progression. This is another study, patients with localized disease who underwent um, uh, surgery or radiation for treatment of their localized disease. Again, metastasis-free survival cancer-specific cancer survival, patients with mutations here in red um, had more rapid progression or more likely to pro progress and die of their cancer. Threefold increased odds of metastasis and prostate cancer-specific mortality independent of clinical and pathological variables. This was a pretty recent study, I think in the last six months or so in European urology from the Hopkins group looking at patients on active surveillance. Now, I'll caution you that this was a really low number of mutation carriers, 26 compared to about 1,200 without. But patients on surveillance with BRCA1 or 2 or ATM mutations, the rates of upgrading were significantly greater. You can see the, you know, pretty big difference. Mutation carrier in orange, red, whatever, non-mutation carrier in blue. That's a big spread. It's hard to ignore. Again, really small numbers. So this is by no means the definitive answer. And it's hard to even know whether that would that mean that translates to down the road? We know that upgrading at, it's a kind of a surrogate endpoint, but does that actually translate to metastasis, death from prostate cancer over time? We've got a lot to learn. This is one study from a couple years ago that looked at 14 patients with localized prostate cancer, actually looked at the tumors themselves, asked the question, are, at a molecular level, are the tumors themselves different in patients with BRCA mutations? And, you know, the findings were pretty interesting. Overall, they were, these were patients with localized disease. And kind of the take-home was that at a gene level, in terms of the genomic instability, in terms of kind of key genes that we look at in advanced prostate cancer, these localized cases with BRCA2 BRCA mutations looked a lot more like metastatic tumors in terms of the molecular genetics of the tumors themselves. So just further possible early evidence that these are genetically different than the run-of-the-mill prostate cancers. So take home for me, what does this mean for active surveillance and lowest BRCA-positive patients? Well, ultimately, Gleason grade is still a strong predictor of metastasis and death. Most of the data is from patients with Gleason 7 or greater prostate cancer. And at this point, while I think we need to exercise caution for patients on putting patients on active surveillance, I do not think that these patients are ineligible for surveillance if they have low-risk prostate cancers 
in this setting. We can discuss that hopefully uh, later on and get some more opinions. For patients with high-risk disease and one of these mutations, again, especially mutations in, BR, in BRCA2, it's, you know, these are patients with really aggressive prostate cancers. And this is an area where we need more clinical trials. We're going to talk in a minute about PARP inhibitors, chemotherapy, and immunotherapy in this setting. But there's no doubt that we need multimodality treatment. These, these are kind of the worst, the most aggressive of our localized prostate cancers, and we need to figure out how to do better in terms of curing these, these patients of their cancers. So with that, I thank you very much for your attention. And I, I actually can't tell how much time we have. Maybe we have a couple minutes for questions, if we have any. All right, well, thanks. How about I'll let, uh, turn it over to Dr. Chang, who's going to talk about germline testing in advanced prostate cancer. start the timer. I just want to make sure we have time for the audience response and discussion at the end. So um, it's so wonderful to be back on this stage and among urologists. I'm a medical oncologist, as um, Todd mentioned earlier, so it's, it's a great delight to be here with you. Um, so I'm going to talk about germline testing in advanced prostate cancer, and some of the um, objectives of the next few minutes are what proportion of patients with metastatic disease have germline mutation predisposing to prostate cancer. So we're going to go all the way to the other end of the disease spectrum where most of my patients are in metastatic disease. What therapies may be applicable for germline DNA repair patients with metastatic disease, which is really exciting. Um, and this is sort of beginning to take us into precision oncology. Um, what are the mechanisms for targeting? targeting DNA repair, which patients with advanced disease should undergo genetic testing. We've sort of gotten a hint of that already. And what treatments are available and what clinical trials are ongoing in the DNA repair deficiency setting for prostate cancer, which hopefully will begin to move into earlier disease states. So you'll be ready to go when that comes. So I like to start with this. Um, kind of schematic, which is not up until very recently, and I think Dr. Gamella kind of alluded to this, we thought about genetics in the following way, and the purpose of genetic testing was to ask, what is the risk of developing cancer? And now, I think especially as a medical oncologist, I appreciate this other aspect, which is precision therapy. Are there more effective treatments for your cancer, for your patient's cancer. And now they're intersecting in this place um, where we're talking about both treatment decision-making and genetic counseling and our involvement as urologists and medical oncologists, and then not forgetting, of course, the risk of other cancers, male breast cancers in some cases, or pancreas cancer, and then also the importance and the obligations that we have to address, when we know about it, the risk to other family members, because that is an opportunity to benefit not just the patient in front of you, but their relatives. Okay, so this is a little bit of a complex slide, um, but I'll hopefully break it down for you. This is a um, schematic of DNA damage response pathways. So those are essentially modules of genes that are involved in maintaining the integrity of your master blueprints or your DNA. Um, so our body is, um, has multiple mechanisms to try to maintain integrity and, and ensure quality control. There are different ways of damaging the DNA, including double-stranded breaks, single-stranded breaks, base, match, base mismatch, insertions, deletions, bulky adducts, and base alkylations. I'm not going to go through all of that, um, except to say there are different mechanisms of damage, and as there are also 
different mechanisms of repairing those different types of damages, uh, damage. Um, for example, for double-stranded brake repair, there's a pathway or a family of genes involved in homologous recombination as a way to correct those um, damage, uh, damages. And the genes that are important for that are BRCA2, BRCA1, PALB2, ATM, and others. And the treatment implications of having defects in that pathway are PARP inhibitors, which I'll come back to, platinum chemotherapy, and potentially others. And we'll talk a little bit about um, mismatch repair, which is the family of genes when they're deficient or when they're defective result in Lynch syndrome. And those are genes including MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and PMS2. And there's excitement and enthusiasm because many of these patients may potentially be candidates for treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors due to the consequences of their DNA or of their genetic errors. So this really sort of leads to excitement about precision treatment opportunities. Um, so Todd, Dr. Uh, Morgan covered this earlier, but uh, DNA damage repair defects and localized prostate cancer. This is a study from the Canadian group, um, Fraser et al. in 2017, when they sequenced localized intermediate prostate uh, tumors, 477. They did whole genome sequencing, 277 whole exome sequences, and they found that actually almost 10% of them carried DNA repair mutations, including in uh, uh, genes important in DNA damage response. So, uh, FANC A, ATM, BRCA2 is on there, RAD51. So, these genes are seen in the tumors or somatic errors are seen in localized prostate cancer. And then, when we look at metastatic prostate cancer tumors, and this is a study from um, a few years back now um, looking at metastatic biopsies again, at the other end of the disease spectrum with men with very advanced disease, when we look at their tumors, 21% of them had evidence of mutations in their cancer, spy allelic, or both copies, are altered in genes of interest, of which half of them are inherited, or half of them are germline. So asking the question from the other end, if we look at the tumors, they have actionable mutations, and half of those, those actionable mutations involve the germline. So this is the paper uh, that came out in 2016 and I think really kind of propelled this field. Um, it uh, looked at 692 men with metastatic prostate cancer and these men were not selected for their family history and they were not selected based on their age of diagnosis which you might otherwise consider as risk factors for carrying a, genetic, a germline genetic mutation. And if you just take, if you took those men, almost 12% of the 700 men um, had inherited germline mutations and DNA repair genes that were important for their treatment and important for their family members. So this number being higher than 10% really kind of led to the changes in practice that we've seen earlier in the NCCN guidelines and so forth. And this is the follow-up paper that Dr. Morgan showed from um, Oliver Sartor's group, um, and this looked at almost, uh, actually over 3,600 men with prostate cancer, and again, um, they were tested between 2013 and 2018, so remember this was happening right around the time of that New England Journal of Medicine paper that I just showed you, 2016 came kind of in the middle of that, so a lot of these patients are going to be by, uh, have more of a, a higher clinical suspicion, meaning they have a family history of cancer, but nevertheless, 
Um, 17% of them had pathogenic germline mutations, and 40% of them did not qualify at the time of their testing for the contemporary NCCN guidelines. Now, the NCCN guidelines have now adjusted, so hopefully today we will not miss that proportion of men, um, because you're here and we're, um, you know, taking in this information and the guidelines are changing and people are thinking about this more, which, uh, which is really important. So similar numbers to Pritchard et al., as mentioned, um, but these, again, are heterogeneous stages in a mix of localized and metastatic disease. So what about treatment? So we know from the metastatic setting there's uh, growing data that we have BRCA2 mutated cancers respond really well to platinum chemotherapy. And this is actually in oncology, not that ex new news. Um, people in uh, our colleagues in breast and ovarian cancer and pancreatic cancer, they actually use platinum in the medical oncology setting for, for a lot of the BRCA-related cancers. In prostate, we hadn't previously been using platinums, and we don't typically use it. But now we have a compelling reason to add platinum into the treatment armamentarium when we know there's a presence of one of these mutations. So on the left-hand panel is a case series that we put out a few years back that showed exceptional response to platinum chemotherapy in people who had been heavily pretreated with a lot of our other best available treatment options. And then on the right is sort of a follow-up confirmatory um, analysis from a uh, study uh, done at Dana-Farber that also uh, supported the idea that BRC to mutation carriers respond well to platinum chemotherapy. And this is an old drug, and it's available, and many oncologists in the community are uh, used to using platinum chemotherapy. And then there's PARP inhibitors, which are getting a lot of excitement. And no doubt you've heard about these already, because I think um, many of you indicated that PARP inhibitors were something you were aware of in the pre-test assessment or pre-course assessment. But this is a paper that came out now you know, in 2015, showing that in men who are heavily pre-treated with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, in 16, uh, 14 out of 16 of them, or almost 90% of them, had response to treatment to Olaparib, which is one of the PARP inhibitors um, that is currently in phase three clinical trials for prostate cancer. So this is getting a lot of excitement. We're all eagerly anticipating uh, the results of the, uh, the phase three studies um, for men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. A brief um, mention about mismatch repair deficiency and microsatellite instability, or MSI high, which um, gets a lot more discussion in kind of the colon cancer realm, but now is becoming more exciting um, in prostate uh, because of the approval of pembrolizumab for uh, microsatellite high features of tumors and evidence of uh, mismatch repair deficiency, which can result from Lynch syndrome. So this is a study that just came out this year in JAMA Oncology from the Memorial Group that showed that the prevalence of MSA high or mismatch repair deficiency in prostate cancer. Now, this series is all prostate cancer, so it includes uh, localized disease as well as advanced disease. But it is not a high proportion, but it is a real proportion, so 3.1%. There's some other studies that suggest in the metastatic castration-resistant setting it may be 5 to 7%. Um, but this is a real population, and of those, 21% of them or so had uh, germline Lynch syndrome mutations. And five of the 11 of those who received anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 agents had durable clinical benefit. So though the benefit of those agents uh, lasted, and um, those agents tend to have a better side effect profile compared to 
uh, chemotherapy. So another nice precision oncology option for patients. And of course, more work needs to be done to sort out sort of the true prevalence in selected populations and who will benefit and who won't, but certainly very exciting. Um, here is an incomplete list of some of the selected trials with relevance to DNA repair defects. There are at least two phase three of PARP inhibitors, phase twos, and then some combinations with checkpoint inhibitors um, that are also really exciting. And this is mostly in the advanced disease setting, um, but we are hopefully going to see more in the localized high-risk setting. I want to talk a little bit about DNA repair deficient metastatic prostate cancer with respect to AR-targeted agents like abiraterone and enzalutabide, which some of you may use for, some of your, for your patients. There's some controversy, or I guess perhaps still emerging data about how patients do who have DNA repair deficiency alterations and their response to androgen receptor-targeted agents. So there's some data suggesting that they may respond better. Um, Maha Hussein discussed data at um, ASCO that was reported in JCO 2017 that the median progression-free survival in patients with DNA repair alterations was actually better than patients who did not have those mutations. And uh, Emmanuel Anner in Takarakis and the Johns Hopkins groups also had some suggestion that they did better. There's some historic retrospective data from um, Joaquin Mateo and Elena Castro, or actually Elena Castro's paper in 2019 is a prospective study, but that they do similarly well. And then some data um, from UBC um, that they may fare a little bit worse, but some of that difference may be accounted for for the timing and the sampling and how the assays were done. Um, I think at this point I would say there is not consensus or strong enough data to say that patients who have DNA re repair alterations should not get um, any of our usual agents. So, the, so I would not, uh, so they should still benefit or still be offered enzalutamide and abiraterone, okay? All right, so this one we've seen a couple times. This is from the NCCN guidelines for this year. Who should be offered germline testing um, in the localized disease setting? I won't spend too much time on that since we've covered it. And then in the advanced setting, regional and metastatic, now it is recommended for everyone to be offered testing. Um, and here's the map of the U.S. Um, and some of our centers of excellence up in the right hand, upper right-hand corner is us in Seattle, um, but then Michigan's here and, uh, with Todd's clinic and then um, Dr. McGamella at the, uh, Philadelphia. But I think really thinking about centers of excellence and even um, as we move forward to consider if you have these patients, to send them for a consultation to really get some comprehensive input about how they and their families should consider um, moving forward. So review in our clinics in Seattle, we review the genetics, both the inherited as well as the tumor genetics. We talk about treatment clinical trial options. You, you sort of saw that the list is growing. It's very exciting. Research opportunities, cascade genetic testing is really, really important. Um, and then involvement of the genetic counselor, if not before, certainly, certainly after if they have mutations or variants of uncertain significance. Um, and then really thinking about comprehensive cancer genetics care and thinking about carriers who have mutations who may have multiple cancers for which they may be at risk and how we can do better by those first-degree relatives. So here's some trials involving some novel models of genetic testing in men. Um, in the advanced disease setting, because we're often thinking about 
treatment implications as well. There's some challenges in terms of time urgency. Um, and so here are some studies looking at that. I think um, they're listed there. You can refer to those. We have one at the University of Washington called Gentleman, which we talked about before. Some of you may be familiar with. It's essentially web-based and patient-driven. There's consent information, um, a patient survey. They include medical uh, data supporting their diagnosis, and they can have a saliva test, um, which is a medical test, not a recreational test. And then they can talk with a genetic counselor by phone afterwards regarding the results of their test. And then they're invited to come in person to our clinic or to a clinic near them or a genetic counselor that we can help them uh, set up with. And they're then invited to follow up with additional research or registry clinical trial opportunities. This is intended to supplement rather than to replace existing frameworks, but it is extremely valuable for many men who live in, for example, rural areas and cannot easily get to one of our clinics or uh, see a genetic counselor in person. And I, I would say also telehealth is um, becoming more of a, a resource for patients for genetic counseling, so that's not something to consider as well. So I think one of the things we'll be moving into into the future, um, and even now really, is to think about how the moderate risk genes like BRCA2 also interact with other genetic modifiers. And this is an example just to sort of highlight thinking about this. Um, this is a study that was published now a couple years ago, 1,800 male carriers of BRCA1 and 2. Um, and then they actually, if you look at their other genetic modifiers, like the polymorphisms, there's a widespread. Um, so they can separate out these curves, but the re for example, by age 80, the risk of developing prostate cancer is between 19 and 61%. So that's a pretty big difference. Um, certainly overall, the risk factors are higher, but if we can further sort out what those additional modifiers are and what we can do about it, I think that would be really powerful. So in conclusion, Approximately one in five men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer have DNA repair mutations, germline and or somatic in their tumors. One in 10 of men with metastatic uh, prostate cancer carry germline mutations in DNA repair genes, most notably BRCA2, but also ATM, BRCA1, and, and a long tail of others that we're learning about. These do, in large part, represent autosomal dominant inherited cancer predisposition which means that any first-degree relative has a 50% chance of carrying those same mutations. We now are so fortunate and excited about molecularly targeted precision trials of platinum chemotherapy, PARP inhibitors, immune checkpoint inhibitors for advanced prostate cancer. And some of this is driving increased awareness and testing, especially in the metastatic setting. But I think um, I, I'm excited today because I think it will not be long before that reaches earlier disease states, and that's when we really can make a difference before it becomes metastatic, and that's why it's so exciting to be here today. Care and thoughtfulness is really needed around implementation. We may have different resources locally where, where you practice, where I practice, um, and that needs to be taken into consideration. I think it's really exciting to think about these toolkits that are being developed um, and workflow optimization efforts that are ongoing to really try to figure out how we can work together to help patients and urologists and urologic oncologists together with genetic providers and medical oncologists are really key in fully realizing the potential benefit of this new knowledge. So this is one of the slides I like to show at the end of my talks, but um, if you take 10 men with metastatic prostate cancer, my, my clinic population, let's say, 
two of those men, or one in five of them, are candidates for PARP inhibitor and platinum chemotherapy precision-targeted treatments. One in 10 of them carries an inherited DNA repair alteration. And that man needs to get genetic testing and have cascade testing because his siblings and his children may be op uh, candidates for tailored screening and risk reduction. We know that those uh, practices are set in place already for breast and ovarian cancer. They're emerging for prostate cancer, and I'll highlight in that box a number of clinical trials that are for men who are carriers specific to prostate cancer. So um, all of our three institutions are involved in collaboration with the National Cancer Institute with the first trial, uh, which is available for screening, but we all also have clinics and, and research programs as well. So these are things that are kind of the next wave of, of investigation and benefit to future patients. And neoadjuvant trials are coming. Or we actually have one already, but there, there's more coming in the pipeline, and I think this is an area to pay attention to. Okay, I think we're on to questions. Let's go back for a sec. Yeah. A couple of things. Um, so, fantastic talk. I'm going to have a question for you yeah. one sec. But yeah. first, I just want to give a, a, one more kind of shout out to that NCI trial up top. If you do have a patient without prostate cancer, but with a germline mutation, one of these genes, so it could be, say, a family member cascade test who's you know, undergone cascade testing from kind of the, the initial proband that you find in, in your, your prostate cancer clinic, those unaffected male carriers are candidates for this study. They will be flown out to the NCI by the NIH and then they will they would undergo um, you know PSA screening. They would get an MRI for free. Very tough to get an MRI covered right in an unaffected male carrier. We don't know yet whether that's valuable or not valuable, but we'll, we're going to learn by getting this you know patients on this study. So just really keep that first one in mind. Um, so question for you, Heather. Can you kind of give us a sense of what the landscape is in terms of the timing for approval for PARP inhibitors in metastatic prostate cancer? So I think the phase three trials, um, at least one of them may have completed accrual. I don't know the results of that. So I, I think it's, I mean, they've been accruing pretty quickly. Um, so I think I'm hopeful in, a, you know, next year or so. But next, I, I, in the next yeah, year, you think? year yeah. or so, yeah. I, I don't know, but yeah. I know that they're moving quickly. So I think it's a matter of time. Nick, can you talk about your new adjuvant study? Yeah, so um, this neoadjuvant study is actually run by my colleague, Bruce Montgomery, but it is for men with known germline BRCA2 mutations. Um, and we know, as Todd was or Dr. Morgan was saying, that those men have higher, worse prognosis even despite curative intent treatment. And so the study involves uh, the, neo, uh, the PARP inhibitor Olaparib for 12 weeks prior to their surgery the radical prostatectomy. But there are also other concepts in, um, in development. I have one through the SWOG that's moving through. So uh, it's a combination of, of PARP versus platinum versus ADT. Can I, can I just make a comment about, uh, can you, I think you sort of went over your gentleman trial kind of quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and unless you live in New York State, yeah. Could you let everybody know that their patients that they have anywhere, yeah. no matter where they live, yeah. don't have to fly to Bethesda, but can yeah. send a buckle smear. Thank you. Maybe in the, I'll go back mail. and I'll I'll go back to that slide. And I did bring some business cards, so if anyone wants to come up and get some. So this study is um, in 
available and intended for everyone actually anywhere, including New York State now. So anyone in the US who has any patient with metastatic prostate cancer is invited to participate in this study. They can go to the website. It's patient-driven, but a lot of times the oncologist or the perhaps urologist can notify and alert the patient that the study is available. It's all web-based, so they go in themselves and they can answer some questions, and then the research team can help them collect the records on their behalf as long as they sign a release of information and then um, they will be mailed to their home, a saliva kit, and the costs are covered by the study. Um, and they will receive the study results, and the study, uh, and the results are um, CLIA and CAP cert or CLIA certified, so it's not recreational testing, it is, in fact, medical genetic testing, and then they can receive their results with a genetic counselor by phone. So they have that as part of the study as well. And, and so that's the URL, and I, I'm happy if you come up afterwards to give you some cards that brought them with me. Thank you. That was a fabulous talk. Um, we do, we, we have a few cases we can discuss, but I, this is a really good chance for, to open it up for questions for any of us, specific patient type questions, general testing questions, please come on. Come on down. Hi, Nilish Patel, uh, University of Cincinnati. Can you talk about uh, uh, the, which are the most likely tests that you would use, considering that there's a huge spectrum of genetic tests that we have, right from somebody who's diagnosed with low-grade uh, prostate cancer to somebody with, you know, with an elevated PSC, has a negative biopsy, uh, to a post-prostatectomy specimen, and, and now, uh, and like Dr. Cheng said, you know, in terms of if they have a BRCA mutation, you know, whether that would have an impact on, on chemotherapy and subsequently whether it is metastatic resistant. Can you please tell us, you know, which would you prefer to among the huge spectrum of tests that seem to be available there? You mean kind of soup to nuts biomarkers? Uh, like somebody who, not, without, you're not talking just germline testing. You're talking right. about some of the genomic tests that Dr. Gamela went over. Do, Dr. Mel, do you want to kind of give us the 30-second, your 30-second thoughts on this? Yeah, so, we, I mean, we're in, we're in the precision medicine area right now, um, and I think that right now where we are with uh, screening, the only thing that we really have, at least coming to the guidelines, is the genetic, is the genetic testing. Once we have, uh, if we have a question about someone that we haven't diagnosed prostate cancer yet, but we're either worried about them or we are uh, trying to make a decision to biopsy or not biopsy. We have a whole variety of uh, urine tests available to us. There's the exosome urine test in Telescore, which is out there, the MDX Select urine test. Uh, the, uh, um, Todd has that already built into some of his screening activities. So we have molecular tests that we use to help us make the decision for biopsy. If we made a biopsy, and then we have a decision about active surveillance or active treatment. We really have three main tests that we look at, the Prolaris, the um, Decipher, and the uh, GPS score from Genomic Health to help us decide on active surveillance versus active treatment. And then kind of when we go down the spectrum, uh, Dr. Morgan mentioned that very exciting study that just came out from Hopkins, which is 
the active surveillance using genomic testing to guide that. That's very preliminary data. That's something else that's there. And then we really, when we get into more advanced uh, cases, active radiation adjuvant versus salvage radiation, most of us tend to use the decipher test, although Prolaris and GPS have a role there. Decipher has helped us decide uh, who should get adjuvant radiation who have adverse pathology versus salvage radiation. And then I think when you get to the latest cases of prostate cancer, as, uh, as Heather has talked about, I think this is really where our genomic and genetic testing is going to find its most rapid and comfortable home, because I think the drugs such as Olaparib, which is likely to be the first approved PARP inhibitor, is going to be coupled with a germline BC, uh, uh, BCRA1, 2, ATM, or check abnormality. So I think this precision medicine is, uh, is taking hold in urology. Again, we're most comfortable right now with the tissue-based uh, Prolaris, GPS, and Decipher. But we have this whole package now of molecular uh, diagnostics which are sitting on our lap that are out there to be available to use. I hope that, I hope that answered the question. Was that the question? I think, answer? yeah, was that, was that the question? Yeah. So that was definitely an A to Z on prostate cancer biomarkers under 60 seconds. Very nice. Yeah, 60-second <laughs> biomarker, right? Please. Hi, I'm Layelle. I'm from Dartmouth. I just have a question. Um, do you find that race has any role in any of this? Does this apply to all comers with prostate cancer, or is there something different with African Americans or Hispanic or Caucasians yeah. or any comment There's, on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Dr. Chang probably has some comments. We have a, it's just, we have a, just a dearth of knowledge on this. I think that um, the short answer is I think there is, um, and I think one of the challenges has been the representation among the available studies is abysmal for um, underrepresented minority groups, essentially. So we don't really have as much. It's there's some data from breast and ovarian cancer that the rates of pathogenic mutations are similar, but the likelihood of finding a variant of uncertain significance is going to be higher simply because there isn't as much data in the databases. And so that's actually a really urgent need of, on the part of the field is that more representation will allow us to make better calls that are more definitive. And, you know, for example, the NIH is sponsoring the All of Us program, which is intended to try to recruit underrepresented populations so that we can better, um, better address the conclusions. There, there's some data that at a somatic mutational level, gene expression level, that tumors in black men may be different, although that's not a given, but it, I'd, I would say the data so far points that direction. But as Heather was saying, the, the germline data that we have is abysmal, and it's a huge problem that we need to fix quickly. Next question. Dr. Gamella, or the um, uh, Jack Long from Austin, Texas, sorry. Are these tests that you mentioned, uh, Polaris and the others, you consider those mature tests with sufficient powerful data behind them? And should practicing urology, urologists in private practice have any fiduciary relationship with the companies that are doing these tests? So I'll, I'll give you my opinion and we'll see what, uh, what Dr. Morgan thinks about that. I think that 
Um, as clinicians, we have a variety of tests which are FDA approved to use, uh, and we figure out do they work in our practice or do they not work in our practice. Uh, I think that the companies have all done fairly good due diligence on their uh, <clears throat> on their populations, <clears throat> showing that they can guide decisions. Um, I don't think I think right now there's a little bit of controversy. Uh, in fact, uh, some organizations have not completely endorsed them in guidelines because, to your point, they don't feel that they're mature enough if there's enough data. I will tell you, though, they do give us some directionality. Uh, they give us more information than just looking at Gleason score, uh, you know, PSA and clinical stage. So I think that um, the utilization of these has to be with the individual. I don't think anyone can say that they are a standard of care. Uh, maybe in a few years they will be. Some of new tests will come in that would become the standard of care, but I think as clinicians, we, we kind of pick and choose what works in our practice. We're big believers in the decipher when it comes to deciding adjuvant radiation versus uh, salvage radiation because we've done some study at Jefferson. Now larger groups have confirmed the fact that if you've got a certain decipher score on your radical prostatectomy specimen and you have adverse pathology that you should radiate right away, that the long-term disease control is improved. If you have a certain decipher score, it doesn't matter if the PSA starts to go up. When you radiate, the patient does just as well. So I think to your point, at the end of the day, I think the companies have done a lot of due diligence. The question is, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, if urologists use this and it's valuable in their practice, I think that's, that's helpful. Think about all the tests that we've had over the years that have kind of come and gone. Uh, there's a lot of tests that out there, such as the old biopsy score. Some of you may be old enough to remember the BARD biopsy score that was going to decide whether or not somebody had prostate cancer or not. That wasn't used by anybody. It sort of went away. So I think, I think these tests that we talk about, Decipher, GPS, and Prolaris, have legs right now. They are being used, but I don't think you can say that they're a standard of care. Was that a droning on answer? That was useful, Todd? I thought that was a great opinion? answer. What's your opinion? Well, um, so one point of clarification is that I mean, they're not FDA approved per se because the FDA has kind of decided at this point they're not, they technically can regulate it, but they're not regulating this. The only, the Oncotype breast is FDA approved, but that's it. Um, but, they, but they're covered by Medicare, which is a whole separate approval, approval process. My opinion is that the data for Polaris and Oncotype and Decipher is quite strong, quite robust, reams of published papers, all, not all, the vast, vast majority of so-called retrospective prospective, meaning using kind of cohorts where patients underwent surgery or started surveillance 15, 20 years ago, and then testing with that built, testing those old samples with built-in follow-up to show that these tests predict what they're supposed to predict with pretty reasonable accuracy. What's lacking are true perspective trials. Um, we're, we, we're running a prospective trial in Michigan called G-Minor Genomics in Michigan Impacting Observation and Radiation. We've accrued 350 <laughs> patients post-prostatectomy with higher risk disease, patients where we typically wonder should we give adjuvant or salvage radiation to PT3 disease or positive surgical margins, randomized to decipher, to a decipher arm or a no decipher arm. And so that, that trial fully accrued about six months ago. The initial endpoint will be changes in decisions 
do patients get radiation in line with their decipher score or not? Um, that will we'll have that report in a year, and then we'll have actually a metastasis-free survival as a five-year endpoint initially. So I think the data is not mature in the sense that there aren't there really isn't prospective randomized trial data for any of these. So that's that way. No, that said, there's a lot of data to support that these are pretty good tests. And they, so when do I tend to use them? I post prostatectomy. That's a great setting, but also for patients really on the edge between surveillance and treatment. So higher volume, really high volume Gleason 6 or lower volume Gleason 3 plus 4. That's where that, to me, is a real sweet spot for these tests moving the needle in terms of decisions. So let's, we've got, let's spend um, a few minutes on some questions here. If you guys can get your phones out, again, there's only like three of you who got the, your phones out at the beginning. So, you know, maybe we can all chime. These, these are, these are, there's no correct answer on these ones. I'll give you guys a second to pull the app up. So here's a situation, we'll chat about this. Healthy 50-year-old man with a known BRCA2 mutation is diagnosed with clinical T1C, PSA7, Gleason 6, 3 out of 12 cores, prostate cancer. What is your opinion regarding surveillance? We thought, you know, is surveillance a good thing or is it not? It's not at all a good option. It's an option, but it's substantial risk. I'd kind of discourage it. Three, I'd recommend it and really recommend high-intensity surveillance, you know, frequent MRIs, biopsies, maybe genomics. Four, I would recommend it. We just, I would just kind of recommend, just like I normally do, with, uh, and put them on our standard surveillance pathway. And so this is the, the patient who says, Doc, I'm just gonna I'm gonna do what you tell me to. So, your opinion really matters. All right, so we got nine participants. So, we've got you know a little bit of each. The the winner here was number. Th Three, the number four was close behind. Team, what do you think? How would, Lenny, how would you cancel this patient? What do you oh. vote? Yeah, Lenny. Do oh. surveillance, but I'd probably do, do number three or, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that makes me a little nervous about this gentleman is I, although we don't have defined rules for active surveillance, I think the 10-year life expectancy kind of plays in a little bit. He's 50 years old. He would make me a little bit uncomfortable for you know for active surveillance over the long term. Um, so um, you know I, I I don't I think I would discourage this in this 50-year-old gentleman. But again, that's because if he was 60 years old, I think I would have a, a different yeah. feeling about it. But I think at 50, you know, his average life expectancy is going to be another 20. 20x oh, years. That, yeah. I don't think it's the greatest choice. You, you would say let's let's just treat up, up front. Yeah. I think I would if, discourage it. Yeah. How about if it was a BRCA1 mutation? Um, really discourage it. <laughs> right. If he had oh, it. I'm saying, yeah. Well, so, well, we would really discourage you for BRCA2, which is right. I think. At BRCA1, you'd still. I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, think. I think so. It's not as strong as BRCA2, but yeah. I think that you know we're, you know, as you pointed out in your uh, uh, in your portion of the talk, we're starting to learn. We're at the earliest phases of learning how does this fit in with the management of localized yeah. prostate cancer. Yeah. But I think we at least have to start considering it. Yeah, Heather? And Todd, you didn't mention, but does he have a family history of prostate cancer or any of the other kind of, because the penetrance may vary based on the family history too. Yeah, he's got, he's got a family history of 
prostate they're breast. They're from prostate cancer, no. I would say, absolutely no. not active that's a, So that's a great point, right? So that, so that, I mean, that's a really important point. What's the family history is, as if somebody died at age 65 of metastatic prostate cancer, that, that might shift the discussion. And so I think that um, important for us to think about. My, my vote on this is number three, but I'm nervous, you know, and I would convey that if the, for, I'll tell you, for the, for this, you know, patient who comes in just like this without a, a gene mutation, I feel, you know, I, com I communicate very explicit, explicitly that I feel that active surveillance is a standard of care. With, in, you know, no, no gene mutation, even a young gentleman with very low risk prostate cancer, um, to me, active surveillance is, is what we need, need to so be doing. You, so you don't think that uh, we should be thinking about some of the international guidelines that talk about 10-year life expectancy that doesn't that doesn't resonate with you? Not not in this setting. Yeah, for you know somebody who's got a higher, say, favorable intermediate risk disease, to me that's different. But for in, in young patient, 50s, still Gleason 6, low volume disease, you look at. I mean, you look at reams of data um, at this point, protect. Um, those patients do really, really well over time. Could you take those biopsies and sequence them like the um, Taylor paper and see if they have those same yeah, That'd be great. Yeah, so, so another thing you could do is look at, at the molecular level. And I think one of the questions is, does, how does Prolaris perform? How does Decipher perform in this type of setting? Question, um, comment? Very interesting discussions. Uh, thank you. Amir Safarian from San Jose, California. I had a question just kind of on a case um, that I have. Healthy 63-year-old male, PSA of 12, first check, nodule, ultrasound shows pretty clear lesion. I biopsy it. Five of 12 cores are positive, 70, 90% involvement, Gleason 6. I'm like, this doesn't add up. Why would it come out as a Gleason 6? Or are we just missing it? And is there any cases for trying to do some more genetic testing and saying what's going to happen to this guy? I'll let you go first sure. this time. Yeah, no, yeah. So, you, so this is somebody with basically really high volume, at least in six. Have you gotten an MRI? No. None. Yeah, so I mean, to me, this is a really good case for when you're trying to, if you're on the board, there are clearly a lot of patients out there with very high volume, but at least in six disease. Those patients are still have been eligible for key trials like PROTECT, and still, on average, do really, really, really well over at least a 10-year time frame. And so that's, again, a potential use for MRI, repeat biopsy, all the tools that we have, genomic tests, if that patient is interested in surveillance. What about doing any of these testings that say, like the, um, the genomic, uh, all these different genomic testings, to say, no, this isn't... This is a more high grade than it's than our standard Gleason six. Yeah, that's a, to me a really good use for those tests in this situation, Lenny. Yeah, I mean for the genetic and genomic testing, again, I don't, you know, I don't think we're there yet. I think again we have more data on using tests such as the Prolaris or the Decipher, whatever. And, and when we talk about those tests, we have to realize they're proprietary tests. They have algorithms that they use. They look for certain sequences and then it puts into their magic algorithm and gives you the risk. So they're very different than looking at our BRCA one or two abnormalities which are well codified by the NCI and the gene data banks to say these are the genetic alterations. Once you start getting into these proprietary risk tests that we keep talking about, they have their own sequences that 
and their own behind the, the sort of behind the curtain algorithm that they use to give you the risk of this patient's chance of dying of prostate cancer or progressing uh, on active surveillance. Um, you know, I mean, I think he has, you know, pretty high, again, he has pretty high volume disease. And again, I'm, I'm really fixated on life expectancy. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, what's the future of someone look like? I mean, the chances are, I think, somebody with that many positive biopsies, more likely than not, is going to be harboring a higher Gleason score somewhere in their mm -hmm. prostate. If you take the whole thing out, you look at it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Great. Thank you. Okay, let's do another one. A six-year-old gentleman underwent... Oh, do we have another? Leave. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, it, it's a really important point. So death from prostate cancer, death from breast cancer, ovarian cancer, absolutely concerning and to me moves the needle. I think one of the challenges that we have with this whole issue about expanded family histories are a lot of people don't know. Uh, you know, they don't know, oh yeah, Uncle Joe had, he got radiation for something and he died from something else. I think sometimes we put too much, um, um, uh, too much trust in what our patients know about truly is their family history. Because lots of times you ask somebody, oh yeah, I, I think he had prostate cancer, but I think he died from a heart attack or something like that. So, I, you know, I, I agree with you, Bob. Death is a really good endpoint to ask. But I think, you know, we do put a lot of emphasis on family history, but I think some of those family histories are more vague sometimes than we would like them to be. Can yeah. I just add something to that? Because I think it is a very important point. But one of the things I'll say, and I've noticed in my clinics, is that there is a generational reluctance to talk about cancer, and we can help our patients change that. So if you say, you know, know your family history and share it with your kids, that may help inform those conversations. Family histories are really important, but they're also not sufficient for the reasons we talked about, but really important to talk about. Great point. Yeah, I think that Heather makes an interesting point that, uh, you know, the, the current generation is really, you know, you know I don't want to say millennial, but they're into all this data stuff. I mean, they, they want to know this stuff. If you look at the, all the 23andMe and all that stuff, it's more likely to be done by a younger person uh, than a more senior person. And again, Heather's point, you know, most of my relatives uh, who had cancer, they had a fungus. You know, I took my uncle when I was growing up to get radiation because he had a fungus in his chest. Okay, I was eight years old. I didn't know any better. He had lung cancer, but, you know, lung cancer was a, you know, was again, as mentioned, was a dirty word, but I think people are being more open about that. And Heather makes a really good point for sharing information with your kids and don't keep it, you know, don't keep it secret because it may have an impact on their health. Yeah, there's a, at least two of my patients who said I didn't find out about my prostate cancer and uh, my father's prostate cancer until I was diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer. So that's an opportunity that could have, um, or a, a, a point that's that could have been social, changed. Good social point. Yeah. yeah. So let's do this one. A 60-year-old gentleman underwent prostatectomy two years ago for T3B, PSA 12, release an 8 cancer. He has a PSA recurrence and gets a PSMA PET now. He has pelvic nodal disease, no family history of cancer. What are your thoughts regarding genetic germline testing? 
would not discuss, would inform him that testing may be useful at a later date, but not now, would recommend referral to a genetic counselor now, would perform pretest counseling and order multi-gene tests in my own urology or oncology clinic. Get those phones out. Yeah, so all across the map. So no, no, would not discusses. Um, some say let's, you know, let's talk about it later. I'll tell you, I do that a lot with my patients. Is that, you know, that the, especially in earlier localized disease where it's not going to impact our treatment decisions at that moment in time. If I, you know, patient comes in with newly diagnosed Gleason seven prostate cancer, I do not see that that germline testing is going to give me information that, that I'm going to act on at that time. And so that's a really good time for, to introduce it. So you know what, this is something we're going to circle back to later. This is not, you, you've got enough on your plate right now to think about, let's talk about what, you know, surgery, radiation, what, what you're going to choose in terms of treatment, what the pros and cons are. We'll circle back to it. And so I think that that is a very reasonable approach. Let's get back to the, the you know, referring to genetic counselor versus order the testing ourselves. Dr. Kamel, you, I mean, you mentioned that you feel, pr you know, pretty strongly about referring to genetic counselor, which makes a lot of sense. What do you make of the shortage access issues? How do we deal with that? That's a, I mean, that's a, that's a great point. And um, there, as we know, there is a global shortage of, uh, of genetic counselors. I mean, we have a shortage of urologists, but we also have a shortage of genetic counselors in this, uh, in this country. Um, and a lot of the breast cancer genetic counselors traditionally have taken up the mantra of uh, doing our prostate cancer genetic counseling. Um, but again, I think it all depends on your location. Sometimes I find out that community settings, community hospitals have much more robust genetic counseling in their breast centers and they have uh, genetic counselors there that are willing to take on uh, prostate cancer uh, counseling. But again, I think it's it's your environment. You got to figure out who's locally who's locally there. The other point to make, and I and I think that this program is uh, emblematic of this, our residents, if if we're going to be doing this in the future, we have to be training our residents in this area. And I can tell you, probably other than the star centers that uh, that uh, we sh that uh, Heather or who showed that Heather you showed yeah, that, Heather, right yeah. Heather showed the star centers that have an interest in this. Um, are probably doing more resident-related education, but I can tell you it's not in the AUA core curriculum anywhere yet. Uh, and I think if we're going to be going this direction, that's something we need to be thinking about the next generation of urologists and really yeah. getting the Office of Education really to put in uh, a little bit more in genetic yeah. counseling for we, our residents. We just put in an AUA update coming on on this topic, so I agree. I think that education at the resident level is really important. Dr. Chang, any comments on this one? I think um, all excellent points. Okay. Because I think medical oncology fellows we're, all go through, doing, as yeah. part of medical oncology training, they actually get formal uh, genetic counseling, mostly in the breast cancer world. Is, is that true? Or? I think most do get much more exposure, but it should be formally part of it. I, and I'm not sure the extent to which that's standard across all training programs. Well, we're out of time. It's, um, thank you very much for attending this with us. One last ask. Okay, go ahead and clap. Okay, good.
One last ask is we would just request you fill out the course evaluations. We really like doing this course, and being able to do the course is really dependent on getting that feedback. So thanks, thanks again for attending.